Well, good morning. It's 1045 crowd. Come on. Good morning. Good, good. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm the family pastor here at the church. It's an honor to be on stage this morning with you and talking and wrestling through scripture together. It's a blessing to be here today. When I was a kid, I grew up in Indiana, to which everyone says, I'm sorry, and I understand. I grew up in Indiana on a farm, and one of the things I loved about growing up where I did was that my grandfather and my parents, we lived just across the woods from each other. So for me, the old Christmas story was like very true, like over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. That's exactly how we got to my grandparents' house. There was always something on the farm to either fix or something to build. There was always something to do. And so I loved being a kid, always helping out with my grandpa and my dad doing whatever we were doing. And there was one time in particular we were, we had some goats, we had some horses, and so we were building a new fence for some of our goats. And so we'd already strung the fence out, and we were putting a bunch of barbed wire on top of that fence to make sure that they were safe and secure. And so uh, we had a post at one end of the fence that was sunk in the ground, nice and solid, and we had tied the barbed wire to that and secured it fast. Then we had tied it to a tractor on the other end of this long stretch of, of, of space in the pasture. And we were pulling it as tight as we could with the tractor so that when my cousin and I in the middle put it on the post, it was nice and tight and perfect. So that was the goal. That's not exactly how it happened. So my cousin and I were in the middle. We pulled the tractor as tight as we could. The barbed wire was ready to go. But the problem was we realized it was on the wrong side of the post. So we grabbed it with our bare hands. We were about to pull it over the top of the post. You ever done something, and as you're doing it, you're thinking to yourself, this is a bad idea. (laughs) Me too. So we grabbed it, and as soon as we started to bring it over the top of the post to the other side, I heard it pop at the far end, and it slid through my hands. And so as soon as I did, I took my hands, I put it behind my back, I could feel the blood like coming out of my fist. So I looked at my cousin, and I was like, all right, let's count them up. So I brought my hands out, put them out in the blood everywhere. So he put me on the John Deere Gator, rode me to my grandma's house, and he put my hands in Epsom salt, of course, and it burned and hurt like crazy. But ever since that moment, anytime I come across any kind of tension of any kind, like I'm weary. I'm wary of tension. We're in a series right now, we're starting a series today that I believe could be the most important series of this year. And I don't say that because necessarily the content of the series, I, don't, I certainly don't say it because of the one delivering the message this morning. I say it because I believe this series, as it falls in line with a certain season that we're in right now in the church calendar known as Lent, um, I believe these two things can work together in a very powerful way. You see, for the next six weeks and the next 40 days during this season of Lent, many of us, we will decide to take some self-reflection Find all the ways in our life that we might need to purge some things so that we could more fully embrace the better things. And so maybe this morning you've decided to give up chocolate. Anybody? Soda. Starbucks. The Masked Singer, please. Is that too personal? We, we were choosing to give up certain things, and every time we feel that void of that thing that we've given up, we remind ourselves it's because we're meant to fill ourselves with the most important thing, which is Jesus. And for some of us, we don't just give up things, we actually add things, really good things, like spending time in prayer, spending time in scripture, being generous, maybe certain things that we add to our life, sacrificial things. In this season of denial during these 40 days, you might begin to sense some kind of tension within your life. And as people wean themselves off a coffee, you will feel tension probably at some point in time in your family. And this tension can be something that can help us become more fully all that God has called us to be. Because the tension that we feel during this season especially is between the things that we want the most and the things that we need the most, which is Jesus. 
And so as this series, we walk through this series, we're going to go through the whole book of 1 Corinthians as we walk through this season of Lent. If we don't fail to recognize something in our lives that need to change during this season, then I believe we've missed the point altogether in the meaning of this season as a whole. Have you ever experienced a tense situation before? Experienced tension of some kind? We probably all have. You've probably sat at that dinner table before where somebody brought that thing up and you're like, oh, come on. We've talked about the 2020 election right now and like the middle of Aunt Ethel's birthday party. Is this the best time to do this? If you're anything like me, I'm just being honest this morning. Maybe you like came home past curfew when you were young and you drove your car in, you turned it off at just the right time so you just slid right into the driveway. I hear y'all laughing. Lights off. And you got out, closed the door really slightly. And then when you walked inside, you realized your dad was sitting in the living room the entire time waiting for you to come home. And you have that walk of shame back to your room, stomach in knots. It's tension. We've all felt and experienced tension in some kind of way, whether it's been a physical thing or potentially an emotional thing or a situational thing. Tension, the dictionary definition is simply this. It's the state of being stretched tight. Tension. It's the state of being stretched tight. It's when you have two opposing forces that are pulling away from one another, and so in the middle it becomes incredibly tight and uncomfortable to the point where you have this sense that something's got to give. Because tension is hard to live with. And yet we all do it, don't we? We live in tension almost constantly because of the decisions we make, because of the relationships that we have, because of the convictions that we hold, because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Some tension is actually created for us. Isn't that nice of people? But, but some tension we actually create ourselves. And it affects all people no matter who you are. It's no respecter of persons. And it even affects people in the church. Tension. So what we find, we have a long history in the church of experienced tension of all kinds. And during this series, in this season, we're going to be studying through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul wrote this letter to a church that was in the middle of tension. Maybe similar to us today. So Corinth is this port city in the ancient Near East, and it was a place that was a melting pot of all kinds of culture and people and religion. There was temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was an economic center. It was a place where a lot of trade came through in this particular region. People were in and out all the time. It was a perfect place for Paul to decide to become a missionary. And so Paul does. He comes to Corinth, and he spends a year and a half there with people preaching and teaching about Jesus. And in that year and a half, there's a lot of people that become Christians, followers of Jesus, And they form a church. You can hear more about this in Acts chapter 18 if you want to hear how this happens. But then Paul leaves. And once he leaves, he hears word that there's problems and there's tensions that have risen up within Corinth. So he decides to write a letter and send it back to the church in Corinth. Now the format of Paul's letter is very specific. There's five sections to it. And in each and every section, what Paul is doing is he's bringing up a problem or an issue or a tension of some kind, and he's offering up some kind of solution, some way to move forward in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You see, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians is all about the resurrection of Jesus. It informs every other piece of the entire book. But this morning, we're going to look at the first four verses, first four chapters in 1 Corinthians that's informed by chapter 15, the first tension that Paul mentions, and this tension in Corinth that he mentions is divisions and conflict. So here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 
He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would all agree with one another in what you say. And there would be no divisions among you, but you would be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul begins by making an observation. The observation he makes is there was multiple reasons within the Corinth church at that point in time that they were divided from one another. There was tension, a pulling between two places that made it very tense in between. And so those who were gathering together for worship were being pulled apart and stretched tight. Can you imagine being a part of this church and all of a sudden you hear that Paul sent a letter back to you and everybody's like, oh great, Paul sent a letter, let's read it. And they start reading through the very first chapter and they get to this section on the divisions within the church. You could just feel the air get sucked out of the church as this is being read, this letter that Paul sent. But Paul's addressing in the first four chapters something that he believes is very important within the church. He uses a specific word here in verse 10 when he says that there would be no divisions among you. The word for divisions is this Greek word, schismata. Everyone say schismata. It's all right. It literally means to tear or split or divide. This word is used when describing fishing nets that were, that were torn from being used and were in need of being repaired in some kind of way. It's a tearing. This word is painful. It's contentious. It's extreme. And there's nothing new. We've been tearing at each other for a very, very long time within the church. For literally thousands of years, we've felt divides like this. In fact, we find every reason that we can to divide amongst ourselves. Even within the church, there's reasons that we divide. It might be theological. And for the most part, when we divide in this way, people are trying to be faithful to what we understand to be the way that we live, the way that we function, for the most part. There are also ways we, we divide that are political. And usually it's because of power. We want our guy or our girl to get in this place to make the decisions that we want to have made, and therefore we can lift them up. And sometimes we divide racially, and usually because of comfort or fear, we don't understand the other, and so it's much easier to stay as far away from each other rather than being united in some kind of way. So Paul makes an appeal. I know there's divisions going on. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be like-minded. This word literally means to be knit together. It's a picture of the restoring of what was torn in schismata. Be of like mind. It's actually like every great um, sports movie you've ever seen in your life. Right? Remember the Titans, Hoosiers, Waterboy, all the really good ones? The story's always the same. You have this team, right? And this team has all kinds of backgrounds, differences, different ways of seeing things. But you have this great coach who comes in the middle of this team. And somehow, he doesn't erase the divisions or the differences, but he helps them unite around one common thing. And guess what that is? Winning. And everyone goes crazy at the end of the movie because they win. Against all odds, this team wins. So Paul comes and steps into the middle of these divisions that are going on within Corinth, and he says to them, I want you to be like-minded. In the midst of your diverse thought, your extremes of opinion, your diverse convictions, there can be a unifying center. So Paul goes further in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 through 13, and begins to explain exactly what's happening in Corinth. He says this, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean in this is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. But he says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You gotta love Paul's gentle spirit here, right? Not really. 
I love what Paul says. So I've heard from Chloe's household. Some of y'all been fighting. We have to deal with this. Chloe told on y'all. You need to stop fighting. But the, the quarrels that Chloe's house has informed Paul of ultimately come down to an ancient Near Eastern um, popularity contest. We don't know exactly what they're wrestling about, but more than likely what's taken place is after Paul left, there were some people who were baptized by Apollos. He has a lot of conversation about baptism in these first four chapters. Again, we don't know exactly, but more than likely, they were baptized by Apollos. These people were baptized by Cephas. These were baptized by Paul. And they decided because he baptized this, me, this is my guy. This one's my favorite. I'm for Apollos. I'm for Paul. I'm for Cephas. And Paul writes and says, wait a minute. Contextually, this might be what's going on, but... It wasn't just content for people to choose one, but actually to hurl insults and hurt the other who choo- chose another guy. You ever watched the news before? Like lately? Good. Don't. <laughs> but if you've watched the news lately, we see this lived out before our very eyes, right? People who have chosen their guy or their girl, and we've entrenched ourselves apart from one another so hard with deep trenches. We're lobbing bombs back and forth between each other. We're defending our chosen leader no matter what, how foolish it might be. We keep lifting them up. And have you realized that on a Sunday morning, this hour is the most segregated hour throughout the time of the week? We come to our churches with people that look like us, think like us, act like us. We're comfortable to stay there rather than asking the question, is there a better way to be knit together, united around one thing in the midst of our divisions, in the midst of what we don't agree upon? And so Paul says this in verse 13, is Christ divided? It's a great question. It's a telling question because I think what Paul's advocating for here is kingdom over competition. Kingdom over competition. You see, Mount Horeb is one church in Lexington among many churches. We happen to be a church that's a United Methodist church with certain conviction, ways of living our faith. We believe faithfully. There are also other churches, Baptist churches, Lutheran churches, Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches, Catholic churches, non-denominational churches. I probably missed some. There's others. Great churches who see scripture and doctrine in certain ways. And in some ways, we can see this as being divided, in some ways, we could see this as being a competition. And I'll be honest, in my 14 years of doing student ministry, I've had to sometimes fight the mentality that it is a competition. That I'm trying to fill the seats with my people. I want to be very clear. Each and every one of these churches, they hold their convictions very strongly in terms of baptism, communion, church leadership, marriage, women's role in ministry. And I think it's okay We should feel strongly about our doctrines because they're important and they're defining for us. However, Paul would remind us that it has to be about kingdom, about Jesus in the midst of the divide. He says, is Christ divided? Mount Horeb, one of the things I love about this church is we become kind of a melting pot of people. I go to coffee with the pastor, I go to new member class, and ultimately I hear all kinds of conversations of people who come from many different backgrounds who come and worship together on a Sunday morning as one people, and here's why. One of our core values is Jesus first, Jesus always. No matter where we come from, what we agree on or what we disagree on, we want Jesus to be first and Jesus always. As you know, we have a traditional service right across the way that's worshiping at the exact same time as this one. This one's contemporary. I don't know if you knew that, but that's what you're in. That one's traditional. They have pews. 
They have liturgy, they sing hymns. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there are pastors who rotate between the two venues. Sometimes I'm wearing a robe and I'm very aware of it because you make fun of me when I do. But we do this for the very reason that Paul brings up. We're not really interested in having people choose their pastor and then follow him around wherever he goes on campus. We don't want favorites. And I know Pastor Faye is everybody's favorite anyway, and so you would choose her no matter what. We want people to choose Jesus. Choose Jesus above anything else. So Paul says a little bit more about this in, cha- in, in chapter three, verse five through seven. He continues on this concept. He says this, what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned each to his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who brings the growth. So who's Apollos, he says, Who's Paul? I love it. He puts his own name in there. I know people love me. Who's Paul? Who's Cephas? They're servants. There's nothing special about them. There's nothing particularly superior from one to another. They're all tools in the hands of God. I want to be very honest. When I first started doing student ministry in this community at Mount Horeb, I thought I was pretty awesome. I've since learned otherwise. So I really believed that if I could be as cool as possible on a Wednesday night, every middle school kid in this community should come to my youth group. So I tried that, and it worked for a little bit. And then I realized I'm not quite as cool as I thought I was, and there was a limit to this. There was a ceiling to this thing. And the reason that I felt this way is because if I'm honest, I thought so much more about myself than I even thought about God. I saw myself as the key as opposed to God's work in the lives of people. I really believed in my mind that I could have a better sermon, I could plan better events, I could do the better thing so that everybody would want to be here with me. And Paul reminds us, some people plant seeds, some people water them, but who brings the growth? God. God's the one who brings the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who's, who's watering is anything, but only God who brings the growth. So God, forgive me for the times where I've become so convinced that I have the corner market on the things of God. Forgive me for the times where I've been convinced myself that I'm the only avenue by which someone might be saved. So I think there's some really practical ways that not just within the church, but within our family, we can navigate some of these divides within our family, our community, our school, our friendships. And maybe the first thing we have to recognize, there may be some rightness in other people's wrongness, and some wrongness in my own rightness. We have to be open to that possibility. I know some of you are very, very smart and have wonderful insights into things, but maybe, maybe there's some rightness in others' wrongness and some wrongness in my rightness. So even if I know for a fact that my opinion, my conviction, my belief about this one thing is right, that does not negate the fact that the person who's on the other side of the tension for me does not have something for me that I can learn from. And if I know in fact that my opinion, my conviction, my belief, this thing, this this thing is right, it doesn't negate the fact that maybe even in the midst of my rightness that I can't be mistaken or off-center or blind in some kind of way, in a way that I can grow, it's possible that could be the case. But how will we ever know this if we're not able to communicate with one another? If we're not able to have conversation? Our country has lost the great art of communication. It's gone. And this year in particular has shown it even more. 
We can't talk to each other. I'm not saying you have to agree with them. I'm not saying you have to give up something. Here's what I'm saying. Have a conversation and listen. When's the last time Jesus disagreed with you? It's an honest question. Maybe for some of us it's been a long time. Maybe it's because we're not listening to Jesus first. That he might guide us. He might speak to us. Here's the other thing. You see, uh, perception is reality for us. The way we perceive the other, the way we perceive the person on the other side of the tension, no matter what it is, perception is reality. And perception changes with proximity. Do you spend any time with anybody who doesn't think like you? Or have you just done the hard work of deleting everybody out of social media that doesn't think like you? Boom, boom, boom. We used to be friends, but I'm not gonna listen to you anymore. Do we spend time with anybody, any friends who have a different skin tone than we have, who come from a different side of the tracks? Have you ever prayed with someone about to Jesus who differs in our doctrinal stance? I think it's really easy to say certain things about someone that we don't actually know that may in fact not be true. See, the second thing that I think we have to do is we have to spit out the gum. So I've got some super bubble here. It's the worst gum on the planet Earth. Amen? They're also the hardest gum on the planet Earth. I have mixed emotions as, as a father toward gum. Because I've spent most of my life teaching my children, you don't swallow gum. Right? Any parents in the room? You don't swallow gum. Because everyone knows if you swallow gum, it's going to stay in your stomach for eight years. So I've been teaching my children over and over again, you don't chew gum. Gum is not food. My son Owen swallowed so much, I'm surprised he's still alive. It's not food. You don't swallow it. You don't let it in. Gum is meant to be something that you chew, and then once the flavor is gone, what do you do? You spit it out. You spit it out. Some gum takes longer, because it might be good gum. Some gum, like the one I have in my mouth already, flavor's already gone. It's terrible. And when this flavor is gone, you have to spit it out. But how many know in the room, you've chewed gum before and out of nowhere, you just kind of wake up for a minute, you're like, wait a minute, this gum's terrible. I should have spit this out a long time ago. It's hard as a rock. It's falling apart in my mouth. It tastes like the rubber that's actually made of. It's kind of freaky if you think about it. So spit out the gum. Now, I think some of us in the room, there are these tensions these divides, these conflicts. And for some of us, we've been chewing on this thing for so long. We just keep coming back to it and back to it and back to it. And the tension and the divide and the conflict, it's not gone anywhere because all you're doing is chewing it over and over. Spit it out. So maybe this morning you're a father. You've not talked to your son in 15 years because there was this thing that happened a long, long time ago. And to be honest, you don't even know what it was about anymore but you've not spoken, and the tension, you could like cut it with a knife. And again, it's not something that you could even put your finger on anymore, it's just kind of been there. And my question is, what if that conflict, that divide, it's time to spit out the gum? Let's just say you are a Democrat and your neighbor is a Republican. You've voted that way since 1973. And the fence between you might as well be the Berlin Wall. You've not spoken in many years, except for that time the tree fell out of your yard and laid on his bird bath is out of necessity. But the past three years have become even more bitter. We don't speak. We don't communicate. It's a stalemate. And my question is, maybe it's time to spit out the gum. 
Or so maybe there was this divorce and it was terrible. It was tearing. It was an awful experience. And since that day, you've made sure not just to ignore your ex, but actually to make sure you speak ill of your ex to everyone around you. Especially your kids, because you secretly want them to turn on them as well. And the problem is, even though there may be reason for, to be mad, reason for revenge, but lately you wonder if your anger is actually only hurting you and your children. And maybe it's time to spit out the gum. There are so many reasons for us to be on opposing sides, to debate and have issue, but sometimes keeping chewing this gum over and over again is just hurting ourselves, and it's keeping ourselves from any kind of healing, any kind of productivity. So spit out the gum. Third, Lastly, what if we can be so right that we can actually be wrong? What if we're so right that we're wrong? My wife has this habit that I've realized after a few years of marriage that I wish someone would have told me about, just being honest. She has this way of taking money and just shoving it into random places all around the house, every pocket, purses, bags, whatever it is, and then one day walking like, hey, I found 75 bucks in my pocket. And I'm supposed to be excited about that. Like, that should have been in the bank. We're like in a place where we like knew where it was. She's like, no, you should be excited. It's like for a rainy day. I'm like, it's not a rainy day. And I would have loved to know I had 75 bucks when I was sweating a month ago. Or you dig into a purse and she got like 50 bucks wrapped up in a receipt of some kind with like granola bar crumbs all over. I'm like, why are you doing this? And I know in the room, you would agree with me. I'm right on this. Right? Thank you. I hear you, brother. I mean, clearly, this is like not a, not a, not a hard one to argue, but like, clearly, the money should be taken care of, placed in a, a proper location, maybe in the bank or, or so forth, so we know where it is. It's not a hard one to argue. But I felt myself at times be so frustrated about that, that I come so close to the edge where even though I'm right, clearly, I can cross over where I become wrong in the way that I treat her, in the way that I talk to her, in the way that I deal with this particular issue. What if we are so right in our political stance? What if we're so right in the things that we believe and the convictions that we have? What if we're so right that if, in fact, we can become wrong? I wanna be clear this morning. I believe there are actual beliefs, convictions, and stances that are correct. I believe there are also stances that we can take that, that are wrong. But when we find ourselves on the correct side of the argument, or preferred end of the spectrum, if you will, we can find ourselves being so right that we miss the point of being like-minded and knit together under the person of Jesus in the midst of the divide. It's scary territory. We would much rather be right than have relationship. Again, I'm not telling you have to choose something else, but choose relationship above it all. Where I see this more than any place is Facebook and social media. I mean, it's so easy because there's no conversation here to use your words as weapons and say whatever you want to. And I've seen people who I agree with, but the way you're saying it is so harmful. There are people who share my beliefs and my convictions, but the way it comes down, it's so harmful. What if we can be so right and so convinced then the way we handle this, we actually do it wrong. It's not about the content, it's about the way you communicate it. But Paul finishes this section with a very, very important passage where I wanna end. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 13. Here's what it says. Paul says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid. 
which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each and every person's work. There are times that we find ourselves divided within the church and Paul would tell us that there's been a foundation that has been laid for us and that foundation is Jesus Christ. It is solid ground. It is solid ground for us to stand on and not just stand on, but to build on because every single one of us, when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, we begin to build in some kind of way or another through experiences and struggles and victories and defeats and Paul would tell us, be careful how you build. Christ is the foundation, but be careful how you build. I read in a book the other day, and it really hit home with me. The way that I think about my faith is like a mural. It's like a beautiful painting. Maybe put up in some art location somewhere. And if you were to take 40 different people and walk up to this mural, maybe this Van Gogh painting right here, it's so beautiful, and, and show it to 40 different people, more than likely, each person would have a different take on this. Some might say, oh my gosh, it stresses me out just to look at all those swirling things. Some might look at it, it's so beautiful. Look how the colors work together, blah, blah, blah. Some might notice the wheat in the field, if that's wheat, I think. We might have different takes on what this thing is. This could be a lot of different things, but there are things that it is not. It could be a lot of different things, but no one looks at this painting and they can't say, look at that beautiful painting of those children eating ice cream on the playground. It's not that. It may be a lot of things, but it's not that. I think what Paul's trying to say here is there's a foundation that is Jesus, the thing that we unite around, the thing that is solid ground for us. And as we wrestle with our faith and these tensions that exist within the church, we must be careful how we build on that foundation. So how do we do this? You see, I think every good parent is not a parent who tells your children a list of right and wrong. Now, please hear me. There are some things I tell my children, this is right, this is wrong. But I would much, much rather teach my children how to think. I want my kids to not grow up within the church, within my family, and think all of these things so that one day when they get to college and they're faced with more difficult discussion, harder tensions, they say, you know what? I have no room for this anymore. And they deconstruct the entire thing. I would much rather give my children, give my church, Tools to wrestle with to find truth. Ways and grids to take every tension through. Politically, racially, you name it. To figure out what we really believe. And the grid very simply is this. It's scripture. It's the Bible. What does the Bible say about this thing? This thing that we're yelling about each other, Democrats, Republicans, and everybody else in between, these things that we're yelling about, what does the Bible say about these things? And I don't mean just one verse or this verse. I mean the overarching message of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the intention that God had from the beginning of creation. How does that inform us in the way we live our life? Traditionally, what has the church always thought about these things? And we take that tradition and line it up against scripture. What does it teach us and how we should live what we believe to be true. Reason and logic, as I look at the world and the way it seems to work, as I line that up against scripture, how does that inform me in the way that I live, the things I believe to be true? My experience as I've lived my life and gone through certain things, I line that up against scripture. How does that inform the way that I live? I would love for us to be people 
we're able to wrestle with the truth of God's word and do it in a way where the Holy Spirit can guide us and lead us because we believe above everything else that the risen Savior Jesus is working within our life even right here and right now. So Paul would say, this is unifying peace for us. As Jesus, we lift him high. We worship him with all that we have. And in the midst of our divides, in the midst of our struggles on every possible kind of front, we choose Jesus. We choose him. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge that life is hard to navigate. It's not very easy. Thus the reason we experience tension in all kinds of ways. Particularly right now, God, within our country, within this season, it's a season of division. I pray, God, that you would help us as Christians to be people who hold our convictions, our beliefs, our stands strongly, but do it in such a way where we love people. We can have conversation. We can wrestle with a lot of stuff, but we can end in saying Jesus is the most important thing. We lift him high. We worship him with all that we have. He informs every way that we live. As we look to your word, God, I pray that you would reveal it to us, God. You'd help us to see the ways we can navigate this life based upon what you've revealed to us. So, Lord, we love you today. And we're thankful for the work that you're doing in our life, God. It's particularly during this Lenten season, Lord, would you help purge the parts of our life that need to go, that we might embrace the things that need to be, so we could fully embrace resurrection in our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.